Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me is... Jeff Kanata. And it's just the two of us today. Uh, it's been a bit of an odd week. This is going to be a bit of an odd episode. Uh, and Devendra's not here, taking a, taking a much-deserved break from the Slash Filmcast. Yeah. Uh, and basically, here's what happened. Jeff, you and I, we just had a bunch of stuff we needed to talk about. Right. A bunch of stuff we needed to get off our chest. Yeah. Uh, and so we have pieced this episode of the podcast together from a couple of different recording sessions. And, uh, you know, I should say that one of the reasons – it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons this episode is, is a little wonky in that way is because by the time people are listening to this, I will have had my second child. Crazy. Well, I, I yeah. don't know if it's by the time, but like roughly around that time I think is correct. Yeah, probably right around that time. Uh, yes, uh, we have a scheduled C-section for Tuesday. So, um, yeah, right around the same time people hear this or after they hear this. So it's it's been a little crazy, but yes. Basically, we have... the moment you are hearing this right now, you should be emailing or tweeting Jeff <laughs> and congratulating him. No, that's a, that's terrible. I don't want to jinx it, right? No, don't, don't jinx, jinx it. it. Don't jinx it. We are, yes, but uh, we have we have a scheduled, uh, scheduled birth, which is different than the first one. And um, I'm, I am uh, nervous and excited, but... I think this is one of the first times that uh, the show you're hearing was not recorded all in one sitting. Yeah. <laughs> we have had multiple sittings. Yeah. So here's what's going to happen. Okay. First, there's going to be a very lengthy segment where I talk about my honeymoon and visiting other countries and, and my impression of that uh, on like movie going and so on and so forth. Uh, and then Jeff's going to talk about what it's like to become a meme. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you're going to hear the trailer for Netflix's Wild Wild Country, and we're going to conclude with an in-depth review of Wild Wild Country, which is the six-part docu-series on Netflix that Jeff and I both saw and we really wanted to talk about. So, so this is kind of like what we normally call after dark yeah. uh, content, but it's before dark this it's time. Before. It's the before dark. It's the before dark. So uh, that's all uh, that's going to happen. And uh, after I finish this sentence, you're going to hear me, David Chen, again introduce the show, <laughs> except uh, it's going to launch into those topics I just said. So yeah. Enjoy the that. end of the sentence is happening <laughs> right now. We, we've had a lot of adventures the last couple weeks, haven't we, Jeff? <laughs> we sure and, have, uh, And so I thought just, you know, there's probably a lot of things we want to talk about, and, and let's, just, uh, let's just get it all out there uh, in podcast format. So well, Let's talk about your adventure first, your, your adventure overseas on your honeymoon. Yeah. Um, wanted to talk about a few of the things I saw and learned while I was overseas. I went to London, Paris, uh, Nice, and Monaco. Uh, while I was on my honeymoon, and it was amazing. We saw some amazing sights, ate at the best restaurants of the world, uh, and yeah, saw saw some cool stuff as well. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention that I had a chance to see was had a chance to see Eugene O'Neill's A Long Day's Journey Into Night. Oh, I'm so jealous. Uh, which starred Jeremy Irons and Leslie Manville. Oh my gosh. Jeremy I'm Irons, a, right. I love him. A legendary uh, actor, but uh, Leslie Manville was just nominated for an Academy Award for her role in Phantom Thread, right? Right. So mm-hmm. these are both titans of acting. Uh, and it's been a long time since I've seen uh, a play. Uh, this play was three hours and 45 minutes long. 
And I, it's I, got long right in the title, Dave. What did yeah, you expect? That's right. That's right. So what's uh, not called the short days journey night. Are you a fan of, uh, of this particular play by any chance? Are you familiar with it? Uh, I'm not a, Oh, very, very familiar with it. Um, I'm not a Eugene O'Neill fan in particular. Uh, he's not one of the playwrights that resonate with me. I admire his work. It's a uh, he's a Titanic filmmaker, and these are Titanic works. Uh, his 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 plays, especially this one, which is sort of um, you know looked at in the same breadth as as the great. Uh, the great roles, you know, the, the Hamlets and the, um, you know, Medeas and, and Long Day's Journey is like in that pantheon, you know, uh, Death of a Salesman. It's kind of like in that, in that. Uh, um, it's it's that well regarded that like, yeah, it, it's, that it's considered Rushmore, an American you know. classic in terms of. Indeed. Yeah. But I've never, it's never really resonated with me, the, the O'Neill oeuvre because maybe because I'm not Irish American, maybe because. That level of sort of uh, drunken depression was never prevalent in my family. Um, whatever it is, I, I admire it from afar, but it, it's not one of those ones that I've always been uh, lusting after to, to play or to to see. But I can also admire when when it's done well. Did you think this was a uh, a great pr- production of it? I thought it was exceptional. I thought it was an, an amazing production. Um, and what is what is great about seeing a, a play this long is you realize like what a physical feat it is yeah. for someone to play one of these parts, especially Leslie Manville's role. She plays the the mother character. So for those who don't know what a long day's journey tonight is, it, it's a play that takes place over the course of one day, uh, and it's uh, autobiographical. Uh, it's it's I mean not strictly autobiographical. It's like base. It's auto. You know, it's not like. Um, Actual characters from Eugene O'Neill's life, but I think it's based heavily on characters from his life, uh, and it's about how his family, like uh, particularly his mom, uh, succumbed to really terrible drug use, and uh, and so you 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 chronicle the, the lives of these characters uh, as they journey from day into night, and and things are revealed about their lives, and uh, they're upsetting, and and so on, uh, and Leslie Manville plays the mom, and. That character starts at like a nine, you know what I mean? Like in terms of <laughs> yeah. intensity, and goes to like eleven. But I'm just saying, like she, she's maintaining this level of neuroticism and intensity for a three and a half hour long time period, and it is amazing to see someone do that, right? Yeah. So not beyond just like, oh wow, that's a great performance. It's just like a physically the physical feat uh, is right. remarkable as well. And, so and to think that they're likely doing it twice some days. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're doing it every night. I mean, I think by the time this episode of the podcast is released, uh, they'll probably have been finished. But uh, it's just it, – you feel like it's a it's a blessing to be able to see live theater performed by people this talented, uh, you know, material that is this strong. You know, it's it just – it's it's an honor to see it. And yeah. speaking of that, you know, I need to speak about my experience seeing it too, which is – People did not do honor to it, Jeffrey. People did not do honor to it. This is the world we live in now, Dave. Uh, people don't un- know how to see live performance. They don't. They don't. They don't. It's not in their world, so they don't know what how to behave. A woman in front of me was texting her friend on her phone during the performance. I had to tell her to stop. I had to say, "Please put that away," because you do not disrespect Jeremy Irons in my presence. You know what I mean? Right. Um, you yeah, not it's dis- disrespectful to do it if Jeremy Irons is on the screen, 
let alone <laughs> let alone you're in his physical there. presence. Yeah. Um, several people fell asleep during the play and were snoring loudly. Like that yeah. was also very what terrible. Was the, what was the median age of those folks, though? You know, twenty twenty years older than me. Yeah. You know, what is the median age of everybody in that theater? That's a problem. You know, that's that's a real problem with with live theater is that it is a an art form that has almost been completely relegated to old people, and it, mostly not mostly, but. No, in no small part because of the economic <laughs> demands of being able to see live theater, uh, and that's something that needs to needs to be addressed. I, I think the theater is too important to be to be a place where old people fall asleep. Well, I will I will say this that uh, the pri- I think we paid like fifty or sixty dollars per ticket, which is extremely affordable when it comes to live theater in my opinion like yeah that's true uh, you know compared to like Hamilton which by the, in Seattle a ticket to Hamilton costs seven hundred dollars I'm not yes. no exaggeration so uh, so seeing long day's journey tonight with Jeremy Irons for fifty dollars was like that's a bargain in my opinion yeah um, I agree uh, and then at the end, you know, there, there's people that like during the curtain call, there's people that hold, are holding up signs that say no photos, please. And mm. there's assholes taking photos, you know, like it, yeah. m- many of which were the ones that were sleeping earlier. Right. Uh, and huh. it, it just is like, you know, have some GD respect people. Uh, it's really uh, unbelievable. Uh, it's I don't understand how we reclaim that. But yeah, I, I will say this. Decorum. I will say this. I did have a Jeff Kanata tingle. I, I, I texted <laughs> you when this happened because in a previous episode of the Slash Filmcast, I think you have you have invade against uh, standing ovations in American theater. Right. Basically, when you go see a musical or when you go see any kind of live performance, uh, most of the time there's a standing ovation. Is that correct? Would you say that's correct? I think that's the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I, I had just seen Leslie Manville bear her soul to, you know, 500 people in this audience. I'm going to freaking stand up and, and do a standing ovation. Um, and, you know, I, I was one of, like, 15 people that stood up out of this entire audience. Wow. Like, wow. And I was like, this is a remarkable performance. You're seeing people who, like, are some of the most gifted actors alive. And there was no standing out. I think uh the british just have an extremely high standard for what what they give a standing up for this is at Wyndham's theater by the way in uh in london and so yeah i i think like people like in other places around the world they will only do a standing o if they really feel like it deserves it that's um, fascinating to me and yeah. and I, I i prefer that i would love for people to only stand if they deserve it but it, it sounded like at least in your opinion, they did deserve it in this I, case. I felt bad. Like Jeremy Irons looks slightly irritated. I mean, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe it was just because he had just spent three hours performing a very challenging part. Yeah. Um, but I, I was like, dude, Jeremy Irons deserves a standing ovation. You know. Um, and <laughs> well, I, I, I wanted I wanted to deserve- will it into existence for him. You know. I, I would never say that people deserve a standing ovation simply because of who they are. But if you know if his, if he performed to the height of what we know Jeremy Irons to be capable of, then I would certainly agree that he deserved a standing O. Uh, he definitely did. He definitely did. So yeah. Uh, so anyway, that was uh, so. Yeah. That's amazing. Had you been to these places in the world before London? Never and- been to any. Never. I've only been outside of the country once to go to New Zealand to cover uh, uh, Adventures of Tintin for SlashFilm.com. That was a long time ago. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. So what what did you what was your takeaway uh, well, let's step through them. How about London? Uh I've been to London twice at least, maybe three times. I love it there. 
Um, but uh, what was your what was your takeaway from? from I, lo- I loved all these places that we went. You know, they all, they all had different things about them that were awesome. And I, I, I will just give a shout out to uh, my wife who did an amazing job planning this trip. Um, but yeah, going going to London, going to France, going to Nice. I mean, it was just an incredible experience. And um, I, I I think uh, Seattle is like I, I love Seattle. Seattle has a lot of great things about it. Uh, you ha- had a chance to see a little bit of it when you came to our wedding a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is kind of a miniature city. You know, it's it has well, a lot of things. In comparison to Paris and London, it is yes. Yeah, I mean. Um, as my wife puts it, London is like uh, New York and DC, you know, like rolled into one, basically, right? Like uh, it's uh, or LA, New York, DC, all rolled into one. You know, like it's a, it's their version of it. I mean, it is. There's just a lot going on, um, and, and uh, everywhere you turn, there's there's stuff to do, there's things to see, um, and the the food is incredible. Uh, the and the, isn't it remarkable to be in a place that actually has history? I, right, know? right. That it's like, hey, this building has been here for a thousand years. It, it, it really actually kind of makes your own problems seem not only your problems, but like your life seem insignificant, yeah. right? Like, like if I'm having struggles with like my job or whatever, and it's like, but then you go to this place where it's like, hey, this, this rock you're standing on or this village you're in. Has been here for four thousand years, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it really puts in perspective how small our lives are, in a way that living in a place like Seattle does not do that, right? Because the building I'm talking to you from right now, like the house I'm in, has existed for five years, right, or three years, you know? Like it's, um, and, and the the office I go to work in has existed for five years or three years, you know? Like it's. But yeah. when you when you're in London, it's like the building you're sleeping in has been there for like four or five hundred years, right? Right. And um, you can visit places, and you know it's it's one thing to read history, which I enjoy, or see films that depict history in in vivid color. Uh, but to be in the physical place and to walk around, I think it was, I think it was the Tower of London that I. Toured. I could be wrong about this. It was many years ago. Uh, but you're able to go up into a cell where someone, uh, many hundreds of people have 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 stayed. You know, have been imprisoned, and you can look down over a square where people were getting beheaded, and there are things you know carved into the wall that were carved there hundreds and hundreds of years ago by human hands, and to see that history in front of you is, is a whole other kind of experience. It is very humbling. Yeah, it is very humbling. Yeah. And Paris, Paris and like the, the French countryside are, um, really different. It, you know, it's great to be in a country that like values rail transportation, you know, and infrastructure, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, th- to be on a high speed train that's going at 300 kilometers per hour, uh, that travels, m- makes multiple trips across the country per day. Um, is 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 great it's very very comfortable so uh so loved it uh and i i I definitely would recommend it i mean it was it was awesome uh had a bunch of awesome suggestions for food and for things to see from a lot of people so uh, a lot of uh listeners so really appreciate all that um i I had a very interesting netflix experience jeff um oh so this is something i didn't realize that when if you have a netflix account and you go to another country you still get to use your Netflix account, but you have access to that country's things. 
Is that so? Yeah. So it was so crazy because I, I go into like England and France and I log into my Netflix and all of a sudden I can download Annihilation to watch on my device, which uh, yeah. was out in Netflix uh, internationally, but not, you know, there's a bunch of stuff from HBO that was out on Netflix internationally that I, you know, you hmm. cannot get access to Netflix. Um, Rick and Morty is out on Netflix, you know, in, wow. in London that you, you can't get that on Netflix here, you know, like so. Uh, and then what you can do is you can download it and then just like watch it in airplane mode on your device uh, until it expires. So it's a sweet loopholes. Great that is. strategy, right? Just travel, like fly to London. Okay, download uh, a bunch of episodes of Star Trek. Yeah, and then come home. Voila! No eight dollar per month fee for the CBS All Access or whatever they make you do. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Airtime, and you've got all that uh, in-flight airtime to watch the media. Perfect. Uh, correct. That's correct. Flawless plan. I watched uh, actually a bunch of stuff on uh, the plane. Uh, I, I did see Wild Wild Country, which is a, a documentary that I want to talk about, but I, I will save that until the next Slash Filmcast proper. Uh, but I did have a chance to watch uh, – well, first of all, I, I, I watched Rick and Morty, as I mentioned. I finally caught up with season three. This is so good. There was an episode – are you caught up, completely caught up? I believe so, yeah. There was an episode of Rick and Morty that was so creative. Uh, I mean, there's I mean, that's two every ep- episode of Rick and Morty. Two episodes this season were like ridiculously creative, right? One, of, in my opinion, one of them was Pickle Rick, which is like a meme at this sure. point. But yes. then there was this episode. I think um, I don't. Remember, it was I think it was called the the Rick Lantis mix up, which takes <laughs> yes. place at the Citadel of Ricks, right? Yeah. And it was so creative. This is Rick and Morty season three. I'm not going to give any plot details away, um, but I, I had to just like take a walk and like think about it you, you know like just like sometimes you you see a work of art like mad max fury road or something you know where you can't even comprehend the mind that created it you know like yeah like right. someone had it's the so will far beyond yes right? yeah, <laughs> someone, I know what you mean. someone had the, the the will and the creativity to make this and and i didn't even know that that was possible and um that's how I felt after watching the Rick Lantis mix-up uh, season three uh, of Rick and Morty. Uh, it just – ridiculously good. Um, there are so many episodes of that show where I feel that of – you know, it, it, any one idea from one of those episodes could be an entire premise for a TV series. Right. And yet they throw them away and have 12 other ideas in the first act of one episode. Yeah. Uh, it's incredible. I will say that, uh, you know, going to Paris and London gave me a, a, a much greater appreciation of movies set in those places, um, mm. particularly the ones in France. So I, we actually, uh, you know, after we visited these places, my wife wanted to watch some movies that were set in those places because she wanted to see if it impacted how we view them. So we watched Before Sunset, um, and then right. we also watched Ronin, the John Frankenheimer film starring Robert De Niro. Right. Uh, and, like, the, so we uh, we did a lot of Ubering around uh, Nice and, and Monaco. and Just like Robert De Niro does in Ronin. Right. He took the Uber. No, but have you ever, like, been to Nice or Monaco or, or the French countryside, the French Riviera, that area? I have not. It is – the roads there are insane. Like, like mo- in most um, American cities or towns – uh, the roads are kind of configured like a grid, right? For the most part, right? Like, 
Mm-hmm. There, there, there is a lot of like parallel lines, right? And like, uh, there's yes. kind of, particularly when you go to New York, right? Like, it's well, it, New York was designed, right? Designed to be a city, and so yes, it, that's why the avenues go one direction, the streets go another. You know, it's it's all very clear and makes sense, and roads are roads, and yet these European cities. They were built before there was such a thing as needing anything like that. Right. <laughs> they just were cobbled together as they went, and uh, the streets are narrower. The, the buildings are hither and yon. So I totally understand what you mean. There's this um, uh, there's this meme that has been on the internet for a while. It's uh, it's like an overhead shot of New York City, and it's like an overhead shot of Boston, right? Mm-hmm. And it, the the one the words over New York say like you know. Uh, New York City, because we want you to know where you are and how to get to where you want to go or something like that. And then it's like, you know, New York City is like laid out like a grid where it's very easy to find everything. And then the words over the Boston uh, roadmap are Boston because fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like Boston is incredibly confusing. It's not parallel. Like everything's all messed up. And so I I, I grew up in Boston. So I thought like, oh, well – that's as bad as it gets when it comes to confusing roads. And I was woefully mistaken. I mean, when you go to Nice or the French countryside, it's like um, it, it's cra- it's crazy. Yeah, it's, 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 it's like they were inventing it as they went along. You know, like uh, – and a, a lot of these streets are two-way streets, but like they're only large enough for one vehicle. So right. like if there's an accident or something, it's like it, you're well. There goes your day. Like you 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 hope you have nothing to do that day because you're not <laughs> yeah, you're not getting nobody's by. getting anywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's why everybody's on a moped because they can like zip around yeah, problems. Yeah, tons of mopeds. Um, and it, people like zipping down these tiny streets uh, at like forty fifty miles per hour, and it, it it's like the the level of difficulty of Uber, like an Uber driver there is I. I I'm not exaggerating. I think it's like five to ten times more difficult to drive where we went than it is to drive in the U.S. Um, and you do well, not need to pay five or ten times more for the Uber. So I will. I will say uh, that um, I I totally concur and understand. In fact, my wife and I, uh, our most recent vacation before we had children and we're no longer able to vacation, um, we went to Provence in in France. Which, by the way, I, I've been a lot of places. I, Provence is I can I would recommend over anything anywhere I've been. It is the most beautiful, the best food, unbelievable. In fact, the only reason I went there is because of our mutual friend Stephen Tobolowski uh, recommended it highly, uh, and uh, so my wife and I looked into it. We ended up going to Provence, fell in love with it. But the reason I bring that up is because uh, we rented a car while we were there and drove ourselves around. Which was uh, a, a, an incredible experience. I have many <laughs> stories uh, about that the harrowing, fun. There's, a, there's nothing that makes you feel more free and alive and more terrified and and uh, timid than uh, renting a car in a foreign land. Yeah. Um, but man, what an experience driving the city streets. Also, I don't know if you uh, gained this as as a as a passenger, but. Boy, are roundabouts a brilliant thing. They are they are the most useful, brilliant, wonderful ex- invention, and we need more of them in the United States. I, I don't know. I, I think, like, in France, there's, like, a roundabout that literally has five – there's roundabouts that have, like, five lanes in them, and those <laughs> yeah. feel like kind of a nightmare. Like, when we were in Paris, it was uh, right. pretty insane. 
So uh, I, I don't know if I agree with you about that. But yeah, I mean, it, it just is like, wow, it is so much more difficult to drive in these other countries than in the United States. Um, you really get an appreciation for uh, the, the urban planning that we have here. Um, <laughs> right. so, uh, anyway, going back to uh, movies, I d- want to mention that on the plane I saw Hitman's Bodyguard. Uh, oh, oh, and we, I was also talking about Ronin. That's right. So, so when Ronin came out um, way back in the day, I remember hearing a lot of praise about how amazing the car chasings were. And it wasn't until I actually went to Nice – that I developed an appreciation. Like it's it's so it's insane. Like I, I can't believe those car chase scenes exist because those streets are so narrow. Those cars are going yeah. so quickly, right? Uh, it, it just must have taken an extremely high level of skill to to execute it the way they did. So super impressed with that. And then um, before sunset, which takes place in Paris, right? Uh, the thing I appreciate about that movie after I um, was in Paris is. Uh, like we went to Paris in like early April and, uh, uh, like being a tourist sucks, you know? And what I mean, (laughs) what I mean by that is like, you go to these locations like Notre Dame de Paris and there's like 5,000 people there. And so you're like, you're, you're, you feel you're like being shoved left and right. And like, there's this teeming mass of humanity with like selfie sticks and everything. It's just, it's, it's basically like all the things you would want to do are physically unpleasant, right? Like it's not a comfortable experience. To... I remember walking into the Louvre and uh, in, into yeah. the famous room with uh, Mona Lisa, right? And it's this very long room. Right, and there's like 500 a... people there, right? Yeah, and there's like a postage stamp-sized Mona Lisa on the other end of it. <laughs> and Which the Mona Lisa, if you don't know, is, is much smaller than you might think it is uh, as, a, as a work of art. Uh, and is in this giant room, which makes sense because everyone wants to see the Mona Lisa and takes want to take a picture of themselves in front of the Mona Lisa, et cetera, et cetera. But you can't get anywhere near it because there's just so many people in the room and it becomes this exercise in futility of like, well, yeah, I guess way over there is the Mona Lisa, but, um, yeah, that's, that's basically how I felt going to any place where that was even remotely famous. Uh, so uh, another thing is like in London, Easter is a big deal. Like people say happy Easter to each other. You know what I mean? Like, Mm-hmm. And then the day after Easter is a bank holiday. So we we made the terrible decision to go to the British Museum, which is an amazing place with a lot of pilfered uh, artifacts that are, are on display for public consumption. And it's, it's like amazing what they have there. They have mummies and stuff like uh, – and th- there was like 5,000 people there at least that day. And it's just like – it's just so um, – it's madness. You, you know, I had a miniature <laughs> movie play out in front of me, Jeffrey, where uh, I saw this woman start screaming with increasing intensity because she had lost her uh, her toddler uh, oh in this crowd of people, and it's just like, wow! Like, oh my! You, you, know, you know, she's like, she starts screaming her name, and she's like looking into the ground, and it's like, wow! Like. That that could have been like a human tragedy. And fortunately, she found her after five minutes. But like, it was one of the scariest things I've witnessed. And you know, it's largely because it's so insanely busy, right? That you, right. you have so many people. Um, one thing that does help is going to uh, the museums like when they're about to close, 
right? So we went to the Musée d'Orsay in, in Paris, and I got to see Vincent Van Gogh. You know that that self portrait of his, uh, sure. The, the impression, you know, like I got to see that the that self portrait uh, with basically no one else there, and that was really special. But like you 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 basically have to be really strategic. And so the reason I bring up Before Sunset is because the thing that's remarkable about watching that movie is uh, how few people there are in the background. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and it's probably because yeah. they they roped that area off because they're shooting there and stuff like that. You know, but like, um, it just felt like wow, that must be nice to walk around Paris where like there's not you're not surrounded at all sides by hundreds of people. So yeah. watching Ronin, you know, I got like a much better appreciation of like wow, that the level of difficulty to to do that is so insane. And watching Before Sunset, I'm like wow, that's like um, I would love to walk around a version of Paris. That had like one percent as many people as as was there, um, and also watch the Hitman's Bodyguard, which is not a great film, but it has a spectacular chase sequence through the streets of Amsterdam. Um, hmm. Have you seen Hitman's Bodyguard? I have not. Yeah, so it's not a great film, but like it has this one action sequence that, like, wow, that is really well executed uh, for a movie that's ostensibly a comedy. So. Hmm. Um, so traveling, yeah, did I mean that's that that is just a small subset of of examples, um, but uh, but it is uh, you know traveling definitely gave me a better appreciation of movies I've seen that take place in those countries. Also, talented Mister Ripley, you know, I can totally understand why you would want to kill someone and then impersonate them in order to live forever in the countryside. <laughs> I mean, it is so <laughs> beautiful and. Um, Life feels so decadent yet so simple at the same time. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing out there. So we yeah. highly recommend it to anyone. So yeah, to tie it back into movies, which is what this podcast is about, um, uh, it, it gave me a better appreciation of, of films. So, well, I think that on a even broader sense, I mean, it, it gives you a greater appreciation of of everything. I I'm a firm believer that the best thing you can do is travel. And it is such a, an illuminating activity to realize that the world works differently outside, outside your little sphere. Uh, and that it's easy to sort of know that intellectually to say, Oh yeah, I know that the world is, is different in these other places. And, uh, I read about things that go on in those places. I see films and TV shows about things that go on in those other places. But to physically be there, to walk amongst the people, to see how people live in a land that's different from yours is so educational on, on so many levels. It, it informs so much of what you understand about human beings and how we how we work. Uh, I am obsessed with travel, and I I really think it is one of the most valuable activities we can engage in. Yeah, um, and to be fair, you know, uh, one can travel for relatively cheap if one tries. Um, but uh, it, it is also, in many ways, a privilege to be able to travel. So, like, one acknowledge sure, it. Like, sure. yeah, you know, not everyone is in a situation where they can travel, right? Because oh, uh, financial clearly, reality. Yeah. Right? So, so want to acknowledge that. But um, I, I will say one other thing about about traveling jeff which is um that i think that snapchat and instagram stories have basically ruined national monuments um and what, <laughs> I, what i mean by that is like everyone like like uh, let me let me be clear i took you know when i when i got home i downloaded all my photos onto my computer 
I, t- I took between my iPhone and my cameras and all that stuff. I took around um, five thousand photos and videos while I was gone. Right, so I'm not saying like I'm a technophobe or anything like that. But you go to any place, and it's just everyone is taking the same exact shot in the same exact way, right? It's Have like, you seen that that YouTube video of that? Uh, I'm not sure. I've seen many YouTube videos that describe stuff like that, but yeah. Well, there's a uh, there's a famous if you Google everyone takes the same picture. There's a famous video that literally shows in rapid succession the same photo in the same famous places with thousands of different people. Yeah, uh, it's like sourced on online. It is hilarious because it's yeah we we are we are no one's original. <laughs> that, that clever idea you had about the Leaning Tower of Pisa, everyone has already done it. Yeah, and and it's like, um, I, so I, I try to, I, I consciously try to like be in the moment. You know what I mean? Like, like I I take a lot of photos, um, but I feel like I capture the minimum amount of what is necessary for me to like feel like I have a memento. I know that's like might sound ridiculous to people, especially because I've taken so many thousands of photos, but like. But I feel like every everyone capturing this incredibly shitty um, cell phone camera fo- footage. Not only is y- y- that you know not a um, like like there's just this necessity of it. You can no longer just take a photo. It, you know what I mean? Like you can no longer just snap a photo and like you're done. You now you now need to take a 15 second video of this place that you're in, even though yeah. the video looks like crap and. Uh, 10,000 people have already taken that video. You now need to take this 15-second video to show, like, hey, I'm, I've, you know, I've visited this place. And uh, it is just more disruptive to the tourism experience when you have, like, 100 people taking 15-second videos. Like, that's, that is just qualitatively worse than 100 people taking, like, a, a photo or even five photos, mm. you know? Um, and so I feel like these, like, video-sharing apps have, like, in many ways ruined um sightseeing in a lot of ways and and you you know what's really dismaying jeff and i I think you would appreciate how depressing this is is we went to a three michelin star restaurant um and for those who don't know like michelin star is very prestigious very few restaurants in the world have three michelin stars but you can get one or two as well and so we went to a three michelin star restaurant called louis the 15th in monaco this is one of the best restaurants in the world extremely fine dining. You know, this is one of those restaurants where there's like, it's actually similar to the restaurant that our wedding reception was at, Jeff, if you recall that, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, there's a fleet of humans that like, are trying to attend to your every need during, right. during the meal. And I, I am not joking. Okay. I am not exaggerating. The guy, there's a couple at the table next to us. And this guy did an Instagram live broadcast of <laughs> of part of his meal and then played it back at full volume on his phone wow. like no no exaggeration and i feel like as little as you know three four five years ago uh that would have been unacceptable like yeah. someone would have come over and said like you, you, like if you go to if you try to go into one of these places without a jacket they will not let you in right that, that's still true today and now you have a guy who's playing an Instagram story video, like blasting it, disrupting other people around him. And it's just like they've just given up, Jeff. 
These play, they just, everyone's they, just giving Or up. are you just old? It's not, I, I don't know. I, I would argue that there is like – it's like um, you wouldn't say I'm old because I didn't want people doing that at the theater. You know, I feel like there's there's no, experiences I, not, like that that like that we should keep in, in you know um, – I am I am on your side. There should be some level of decorum, right? I, I yeah. completely agree 100 percent, 100 percent. But I am I am presenting the other side because I wonder if that is just a get-off-my-lawn – type of thing, a generation that you and I share in the sense that we think that that is unacceptable behavior. And yet to a new generation, perhaps, perhaps that is, that's what one does. Well, I think one thing that it does provide for like the restaurant, for instance, is it does give them publicity, right? Like if you're sharing about it with your friends, like you're letting your friends know about this restaurant. Yeah. Um, so maybe like they've made this gotta Faust- get those shares and likes. Yeah, shares they've and made likes. this Faustian bargain that like we're okay accepting this like hit to the dining experience if like people are sharing about our stuff. Um, yeah. So, so so that was another thing that really struck me when I was there was like. Well, know, I have two. I have two two comments on that. Yeah. Uh, the first is uh, part of me. Uh, in this sort of larger comment that you made about this ruining the tourist experience, there's part of me that is so jealous of the people who will have gone through their entire life with a video camera in their pocket at all times. Um, I I have so much of my life that is just gone to uh, failed memory. You know, or uh, I'll be with uh, an old friend and they'll tell me about a thing that we did. And I'll be like, oh, my God, did we do that? Really? Uh, My son will have every moment of his life recorded in some way. And perhaps he'll only be able to go back and watch a fraction of it. But it will always be there to review and and wait, wait, wait. Have... so I, I, I don't, I don't, you, you said you, you're jealous of people who have the the uh, like I, I just don't understand the premise you're saying. They had a video camera in their pocket, so they didn't record things, or they did. Like, which one are you? So they did. So they did. I'm saying you're you're saying that there is this um, this kind of destructive necessity to constantly be taking 15 second videos of everything you see. And while I agree that your 15 second video of the Eiffel Tower is in no way relevant, because there are plenty of videos of the Eiffel Tower. Your 15-second video of you and your wife in front of the Eiffel Tower is a moment that you will always be able to revisit. And uh, I, I I don't know. I, I love the fact that my son will see so much more of his childhood and growing up and moments. He, it will be accessible for, for him and recorded and uh, easily re- – you know he can return to it at, at any point. Whereas I have like – I don't know two dozen pictures of myself from when I was a kid, you know, uh, I, I, there's something magical about that and something that I'm insanely jealous of. There are many things in my high school and college years that I wish I could go back and look at and, and watch again and see who I was in those times. All I have is my very, very fallible memory and the memory of my friends to, to, you know, recall those things. So that's the positive side, negative side. Which is the second point I want to make is uh, I I am doing a a job uh, recently working with several people, uh, several of which are much younger than I, um, millennials we'll call them, but very on the in the very young side of the millennial 
uh, range. And we got into a conversation about going to concerts and people who have their cell phones out recording the concert the whole time. And those of us in, in my age range uh, were expressing our distaste for that behavior and our feeling that, you know, you need to experience it in the moment and live through it. And, and, you know, yeah, sure. Take some pictures, but you're not there to record it. And this younger coworker of mine said, no, the reason I bought the ticket is to record it. That's why I went. I didn't go there to listen to the music. I went there to get a recording of that moment so that I can watch it later. And I thought that was such a strange paradigm shift of, of intention. It is, uh, she was just completely uninterested in having the experience right. in the moment. She was there to be a stenographer for later enjoyment. She was there to just be a camera operator so that later on she could revisit the concert as many times as she wanted. Right. It is really bizarre. I mean, I think the thing that offends me about that is not necessarily that someone wants to record a concert. It's that the vast majority of the time, I would say like 99% of people, when they go in, they're using extremely crappy technology to record. I mean, you know. <laughs> that's what offends you? Yeah. No, there's, there's, if it was like high fidelity and like you could act like VR, you know, like you go in and you could re experience a concert. Uh, that would be compelling. Like that'd be interesting. You know, like I, I right. could respect that. But it's like this incredibly low res, uh, you know, blown out, like incomprehensible. Yeah. Like the audio is clipping. Like pale it just, substitute. Of yeah, the it's, actual it's just moment. it's like yeah. it's like it's such a poor imitation of it that you should just like, like you can choose to either experience it live or have a poor imitation. And a lot of people choose a poor imitation. And yeah. that's what's the now. If if you had a really good rep- reproduction. Then I could actually understand why you'd surrender, right? One for the other, but but most of the time it's not good, and that's what really um, that offends me, at least. So, yeah. Anyway, interesting. Anyway, um, but yeah, I, clearly Jeff, we're we're old men who um, are Indeed. getting increasingly grumpier, out of touch with everything. I want to talk about this thing that happened to you this week. Um, if you if you want to talk about it, I'm open to talking about it. I, I learned some lessons. Today. Yeah, I, 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 I may I, I may want to drop some some lessons on you, Jeff. Um, oh, I'm but, sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So so uh, for those who don't know, Jeff also reviews video games in addition to to movies. And there was an extremely highly anticipated video game that came out, or not that came out, but that that uh, the press embargo lifted this week. So people who had the game were able to talk about it. This game is called God of War, and it's for PlayStation 4. It's, the, it's basically the fourth main entry into this franchise. Uh, and it, it's, everyone said this game is amazing, right? Like, this game got t- like 10 out of 10 across the board. Um, and Jeff, you also really love the game, right? I did. You, I you, do. You're a big fan of it. Um, and that's what led you... <laughs> To to tweet the following um, tweet, okay. Well, before you say what it is, yes. uh, uh, the so I'd had we those of us in the press that were given the game early 
had the game for, for quite a while. I had finished the, the main storyline of the game uh, and was waiting for the embargo to lift. The embargo to lifted at midnight. Uh, and at midnight, I stayed up. I, at midnight, I tweeted a, uh, a threaded series of tweets uh, with, I think, a, a, a brief but fairly, um, a fairly comprehensive uh, review of my thoughts on, on the overall game. And I did that at midnight, and people were – reviews were going up. People were all excited. I had this threaded, threaded multi-tweet review uh, yeah, that – Which I said in part, like, quote, I don't usually give scores for video games, but God of War is a 10, 10 out of 10 on every scale I can imagine. It is one of the finest crafted single-player games of all time, the kind of game you buy a new TV for to experience it in the best possible way, end quote. You know, you go on for a little bit about how awesome right. it is, right? So, so that went out. It was – whatever. It was great. I you know did some few, few things. It was about one o'clock in the morning, much past my usual bedtime. Being a father, uh, I got crawled into bed, and as I was as I was headed off to to sleep, I went, "Oh, I have another thought <laughs> uh, about the kinds of games that God of War mm. reminds me of." And I rolled over right, right was, in in right in the moment when you're about to go to bed. Like that's the worst time to have those like tweet epiphanies. Indeed, it turns out that that may be the case, uh, but that is the absolute truth of how this went down. It was one o'clock in the morning. I was literally in bed. My wife asleep next to me, and I went, "Oh, one more thing before I head to sleep." I tweeted it, set my, set my phone down, and rolled over and went to sleep. And this is what that tweet was. Okay, uh, so this is sent on April twelfth uh, at four o seven a.m. Eastern time, Pacific yes, time. Yeah, a little past one o'clock in yeah. the morning, my time. Yeah. Quote from Jeff Kanata, what if Zelda had an amazing cinematic story? What if Last of Us had incredible skill-based combat? What if Uncharted somehow put all the violence in context? What if Dark Souls was approachable and clear? The answer to all of these questions and more is God of War, end quote. So uh, for, for those who don't know, you know, like, uh, and let's just say this tweet went viral. It had 800 replies. 2.3 thousand retweets and 9.2 thousand favorites, right? So uh, probably one of your most popular tweets of all time, right? Oh, undoubtedly. I woke up – boy, it was only 800 replies. Is that true? I, yes. I feel like I got that in the first 15 minutes. Right. Uh, well, yeah, maybe there's a lot of quote tweets, right? <laughs> yeah, so – but for those who don't know, like like Jeff loves all those games that he listed there, right? But, but he was so. pointing out that those games do have issues or ways that they could be improved, Right. And so, but I think what a lot of people did was they took that tweet as basically an attack on every single one of those games. So you you actually managed to enrage four different fan bases with one tweet, right? Somehow that is how it was taken by a lot of people. Now I will note. So when I woke up the next morning, it had just exploded. It had been picked up and put on Reddit and put on 4chan and a bunch of other places, and and I was getting. Very angry replies. People who had no idea who I was were were seeing this tweet, and it turned into a meme where that whole "what if this had that, what if this had that" turned into this structure that people use to ridicule me and the original tweet. Um, and, and yes, and, and, and look, let's let's you know, Jeff, let's um, let's uh, read through some of these uh, these memes. <laughs> okay. okay, so. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I will admit some of these really did tickle me. 
Um, so this one comes from Bill Mudrin or at Mudrin on Twitter. He says, what if Zelda had licensed vehicles? <laughs> what if Last of Us had 10-minute laps? What if Uncharted somehow combined exploring with arcade racing? What if Dark Souls could beep beep? The answer to all these questions and more is Beetle Adventure Racing for Nintendo 64. <laughs> um, so that's one example. But like people basically were using that formation... Right. Uh, for like many, you know, many tweets, like it, it became w- a meme of uh, yeah. The strangest thing when I woke up and over the next several days was that so many of the tweet responses I got were, "Hey, is this the guy that started the meme, or is this where the meme started with this dude?" <laughs> People so trying to for, figure out, right? Yeah. So for me, it was a very odd. Very odd moment. And I started out this journey of of riding this crazy wave of being a meme. Uh, it, it was sort of bemused and uh, and just sort of uh, I, it didn't it didn't bother me. I, I I understood that my tweet had been misunderstood by a large group of people, but I noticed that almost almost exactly. Zero of the people who knew who I was and actually followed me and knew my show and like had any context, had read even the previous tweet thread that came out directly before this tweet. Anybody that understood who I was and where I was coming from understood completely what I was saying. And it was only people who had picked this up because it had gained this virality uh, that didn't understand it. So it didn't – at first, it didn't bother me that this was happening. I was just sort of – amazed by it and watching it and i started reading all the replies and seeing all the i mean there was a lot and what, what were you saying just just so, so we're clear so we don't perpetuate more misunderstandings like what were you trying to say and what how do you think you've been misunderstood i'll try to put it this way right so people don't even have to understand video games to, to understand what i was saying I, I and maybe this is a silly analogy but i was i was saying in, in essence what if a hamburger had cheese on it <laughs> what if what if what if a grilled cheese sandwich had meat in the middle of it? The answer to all these questions is a cheeseburger, you know? And in, in essence people were saying, "Fuck you, a hamburger is perfect." Fuck you. I don't I don't want why would you want to ruin a grilled cheese sandwich like that? And from my perspective I was saying nothing about the quality of the cheese of, of the hamburger or the grilled cheese sandwich. I was saying there's this amazing thing that has the qualities that you like of the hamburger and the qualities you like of the cheeseburger of the grilled cheese sandwich, but does something all its own also that like it, you know what you like about a, a grilled cheese sandwich? Imagine that with meat in the middle of it. Wouldn't that be something amazing? That's what this is. And uh, so, I, I mean, I, I know that's a, a silly analogy, but that's essentially what I was saying is look these the greatest games of all time this game plucks things from and adds this element to them and they don't have these elements and i i, I don't understand i mean i i understand why people misunderstood misunderstood that and misinterpreted what i was saying i don't understand why it would make people so angry uh and i i don't i don't think that i mean there are i have some regrets about specific wording. I, I wish I had said instead of, for example, 
what if Zelda had an amazing cinematic story? I wish I had said, what if Zelda had an amazing Lee cinematic story? Because an amazing cinematic story could be interpreted as saying it doesn't have an amazing story. The, the story sucks, which is not what I was saying. Mm. But there's no person that would play any of the Zelda games and then play God of War and say they are equally cinematic. Right. <laughs> God of War is doing something that is using the language of cinema, the visual language of cinema in a way video games have literally never done before. I mean, even I would argue the Naughty Dog games haven't done that before. Um, so I, I was, I was, I think saying fairly benign mainstream things about these games. People attacked me on the God of the dark souls comment insinuating that I was saying something along the lines of Dark Souls is too hard. And there's a lot of like get good comments to me and go dark. You suck. You just suck at video games. <laughs> None of which I was commenting on or I, I was, there is a clarity. <laughs> that but, but, but Jeff, I mean, but Jeff, it's like, it's like if you said to a friend, you know, Oh my God, you have lost so much weight. You know what I mean? And you might mean that as a compliment, but it implies that they were fat, right? Or that they were unhealthy or overweight or something like that. And so I, I disagree. I disagree. I think it's more like me saying, uh, what if the Dark Knight had Jared Leto as the Joker? Now somebody could go, that would fucking ruin the Dark Knight, right? <laughs> That's one way of one way of of saying it. Is is that would be a terror Heath Ledger's performance is perfect. That would ruin that movie. But another person would look at that comment and go, "Huh, that is something to consider. That's interesting. Jared Leto as the as as the Joker. I I wonder what that would be like, you know?" Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Th- that that I think is the difference. Is I'm not attacking Heath Ledger's performance in The Dark Knight. I think his performance is spectacular. But can you imagine? I'm trying to. I, convey- I, yeah, I, I guess I'm saying I, I don't agree that that's how that came across. Like I, you, you're not saying like what? Hold on, let me let's let's pull up the tweet again. Um, what if Zelda had an amazing cinema? Yeah, you wanted an amazing Lee cinema. What if last? Because I think the thing is like. Like when you say what if Last of Us had incredible skill based combat, a lot of people probably feel like Last of Us did have skill based combat. You know what I mean? That well, like clearly based on the amount of rage that it that that generated, uh, people do think it has skill based combat. So, so so then you're like implying that it didn't, even though people think it did. So 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 people interpret that as a slam. You know what I mean? Um, you, I don't think you chose something that was so far. You, you know, it's, you're, you didn't say like, "What if Last of Us had uh, more clowns in it?" You know, you, like, you didn't say <laughs> something that like was so out there that people would never mistake it for something that you know what I'm saying. Like, it was something uh, that people thought that these games might have already had or never needed. Right? I don't think that if you asked someone to list all of the virtues of The Last of Us, they would get to <laughs> skill based combat. For a long time. I don't think that is something you think of when you think of Last of I, 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 The combat in that game is not devoid of skill. I'm not arguing that it is. I'm not saying that – but you don't – that game is not an, an action game. It is not about I, – I, what I was trying to frame in that conversation was you can have a game where the relationship between Joel and Ellie 
sits side by side with intense third person action combat and it doesn't feel weird. Right? That's what God of War proves. Mm-hmm. That but in Last of Us, the combat has to be this sort of intense, brutal, very quick combat by virtue of the fact that it's this realistic thing, right? You are mostly hiding from people. You pounce on them and, and pummel them very quickly. It's not well, – there's no combo system. All, 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 in, in, all I was se. saying all I was saying was that like I, I, I think – you know, and you probably already know this, so maybe the point's not even worth making. But I think the tweet is very easily misunderstood in, in isolation. Right. Well, that that is, you know, QED, right? That I I have there's no argument to be made about that because literally thousands of people <laughs> misinterpreted it, right? I, I have no right. leg to stand on to say it is not misinterpretable. My my take on this is that you have to take you have to assume the least charitable uh, assumption uh, about my intention. In order to draw that conclusion, yes, you have you have yes. to assume that my intent was to piss you off or to take a shit on those games. In order to have that, that has to be your starting place, right? And anybody who knows me, and by the way, I had, I mean, I guess there, a lot of people have since said that you have to assume anything is going to go viral when you tweet it, but that has never been my assumption. My assumption has always been when I am the little voice in my head that says, Oh, I should tweet this assumes a very specific group of people are going to read it. And that is the people that I tend to interact with on Twitter, my audience, the the people who follow me. And so none of those people had that interpretation that I've been able to, to, to find none of the people that actually know who I am interpreted it the way you seem to think is so easy to interpret. And so that consideration didn't come into my mind that, oh, people would take a very harsh view of what I'm trying to say here, especially in light of the fact that it followed up a thread that really did contextualize a lot I was saying because even in that thread, I had referenced Dark Souls and Uncharted a few times or whatever it was. Um, so I understand that I am at fault here in in the sense that I I – poked a hornet's nest that I didn't know I was poking with a a tweet that could be interpreted as a way of taking a crap on these games. But it requires people to come at it with their own sense of defensiveness that I don't think I put on it. I don't think that's my fault. Um, But but maybe I'm being defensive. I don't know. Well, I I am curious – so you know we 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 texted a little bit the day this was blowing up and um i i think you you do need to proceed as though anything you tweet can go viral these days you know um past stuff you tweet can go viral and um and i think you you just have to assume that people are going to rip things out of context and and your tweets need to be able to stand on the individual tweet level like it, it is it is no longer uh, acceptable, in my opinion, to, to tweet something that requires more than one tweet for context because people can just take the one and embed it and vilify you and make memes out of it, right? Well, fair so, enough. So, but, but, but I guess my question is like, like do you, have you learned any 
Actually, before I ask you that question, I do want to read a couple of these other um, uh, memes of this, if that's okay with you. <laughs> yes. So, uh, Rob R. Bob uh, tweeted this. What if Zelda had an amazing cinematic story? What if Last of Us had incredible skill-based combat? What if Uncharted somehow put all the violence in context? What if Dark Souls is approach- approachable and clear? What if I were to disguise fast food as my own cooking? And then he has a photo of Principal Skinner on that episode when he is trying to impress Superintendent Chalmers, and so he gets Steamed crusty hams. burgers. Steamed hams. Steamed hams, right? That, right. And um, so that tweet has 13,000 likes. It, it surpassed even your tweet, Jeff. Yeah, which is why a lot of people were like tweeting me going, is this the guy that started that? <laughs> yeah. And then Z Brungies tweets, what if Sonic had a gun? 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 The answer to all these questions and more is Sonic underscore gun dot PNG. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty funny. And it's just an image of Sonic with a gun. <laughs> okay, pretty anyway. Um, well, he, he, so, yeah, so what an, lessons have an, you learned from, from this, Jeffrey? Well, there's a next level to, to, to what happened because I was sort of, as I said, I was reading all these replies and just sort of. Uh, experiencing being at the center of this weird cyclone of, of being memed, um, and not it didn't really even bother me. I, it was it was strange in that I started getting text messages from friends saying, "Oh, I'm so sorry for what's going on," and I was like, "Oh, I guess I should be sadder about this because all these people are te- texting me and you know un, unsolicited and, and just offering their condolences for my feelings." Uh, you and, seemed very chill when we when we t- texted about it, but then on Twitter I saw you going kind of aggro against some people. It, it there there was a, a a very clear moment that it turned dark uh, <laughs> for me, and and this again I have some culpability too because I leaned into it in a way that I shouldn't have. Uh, I think I think it's very easy for people to say ignore uh, when it's not happening to them. Uh, but as I said, I, I probably shouldn't have, but I was reading all of it and just, I mean, there was a lot of people that were just saying, you know, you have never played a Zelda game. You've never played any games before. You're, I mean, obviously things, they're just ridiculous. All you have to do is Google my name. You know, that's not the case. Um, and, and, uh, you know, people saying just like, go to hell, fuck you. This is the worst tweet I've ever seen. Uh, well, we have a new winner for the worst thing that's ever been on the internet. Like things are just disproportionate and I could laugh off like water off a duck's back. None of that stuff was getting to me. And then, uh, I think the first thing that happened was, uh, a guy who has since, apologized and has been very, very cool uh, about it. And, and we reconciled and it is, it is all good. And he, I give him a lot of credit for that, but uh, he was the social media manager of the, the Washington post. (laughs) And he tweeted, uh, retweeted my tweet saying the problem with game critics is that they don't know how to write and they're terrible communicators. Here's a great example. And, and, and I thought, okay, it's fine when there's all these people who don't know anything about me, whatever, just taking a shit on me. Fine. But when a a professional person, um, takes a swipe like that without even reaching out to me about it, that 
it riled me up. That got me very upset. And so I engaged with him and got very heated and asked him if he even had any idea, uh, you know, if he's going to impugn my ability to communicate or my, my standing as a critic, which is basically my job. Um, was he going to bother to look at anything else I've ever said or written, or is he going to base it on that one tweet, which he, you know, he yanked out of context. It, it didn't even bother to look at the previous tweet or any of my other tweets, let alone an entire decade's worth of commentary that I've made a living to make doing. Um, and of course he didn't, didn't know who I was from Adam, right? He had no idea who I was and was kind of proudly proclaiming. I know I have no idea who you are. And I found that to be the height of uh, unprofessional and called him out on it. And it, it didn't upset me and get me, got me pretty angry. And then uh, other professionals in our field, Adam Sessler came in and defended me and, and to this guy. And like I said, he very quickly actually apologized uh, and deleted his attack and, and, you know, uh, started following me and, and it, it, tur- it turned out to be a happy ending there, but I think it, well, it case closed, right? Everything, then everything went yeah. fine from that point forward, right? Well, it spun me off. I don't know if this is <laughs> tedious, we don't have to go into all of it, but it, it spun me off in a whole different direction. And then, um, this young streamer girl, uh, came at me in a, in a way I found to be really unprofessional and in poor taste. And she said, said, point me at the guy who uh, doesn't understand Zelda or something like that. Point me at the guy who hates, who thinks Zelda has no story uh, to her audience. And then somebody was like, here he is. And she's like, this guy, this guy. And then she tweets at me, uh, who are you and why are you so wrong? And I just thought, you know, here's somebody who is just starting out, very young, very low follower counts, but it presents herself as a Twitch streamer and professional. She, this is clearly the field she wants to be in. Why would she – why? Uh, and so I, I responded in a way I probably shouldn't have, but I said grow up. I just responded grow up, which sparked uh, an attack from her audience and herself and – uh, and then I tried to diffuse the situation and, again, handled this in a way that I probably shouldn't have. But I just offered her some advice and said, hey, if you want to – you know, if you're trying to be a streamer in this industry, it's more about how you treat people. Right. That's, and and, that's, and just, just, just so people at home who are – have made it this far in the podcast. Um, <laughs> like – so I actually read these tweets that Jeff wrote and like – um, like if you can imagine basically like the Picard facepalm image and then like the facepalm growing deeper and deeper as like Jeff's tweets continued. <laughs> that was well, basically my reaction. I, mean, I guess that's easy to say. I, I, I guess it is. But I, I, I honestly yeah. thought I was I yeah. was coming at it from a place of of trying to take the high road and not be defensive and just be like, hey, we're both trying to be professionals here. Be nice. Like being nice is what is going to matter more in your life than anything else. And for that, I was 
uh, evidently a misogynist and um, threatening her and telling her she'll never make it in this industry and how somehow I'll crush her because she had the, the audacity to ask me who I was. None of which, of course, is accurate. But I, I don't know if you I think I think if you look over the series of tweets that I sent to her, I was always being very, I thought, respectful and saying, you know, hey, <laughs> I, I, I understand the intention of what you're trying to do, right? Like you're trying to like give this person advice and like uh, you're trying to take – I'm just a, saying be nice. Right, you're, be you're, trying nice to take a, you're trying to take a negative interaction and turn it into a positive one. Like I, I understand like what you're trying to do. But the same dynamic that got you into this situation was at play with those tweets as well, right? Which is like people can rip that one thing out of context and – construct a whole version of you that may or may not represent reality right but why is that so like that like, i think is the that i think is the sad the sad truth right that we, we just can't we this is why my conclusion when you, going back to what you decided you asked me is what conclusions have i drawn right, right. and the conclusion that i have drawn is as we created the this amazing way to communicate with each other all over the world, all at once, instantaneously, all the time, we basically destroyed communication. We can't actually communicate because everything is a fight. Everything is a fight. It is, we are all somehow, for some reason, looking for the least charitable reading at any given time. It is, everybody is attempting to discern what is the worst version of what you are saying and not only choosing to believe that, but choosing, trying to convince me that's what I was saying, trying to tell me, even when I am attempting to correct you and let you know what my intent was, deciding that you know my intention better than I know my intention. And and I think that that is just a complete breakdown of communication uh, between human beings. If we if we are unable to listen to each other and actually uh, have a desire to understand what the other person is saying, rather than just assume what they mean and cling to that assumption in the face of their own clarification, it it, it it's a worthless endeavor. Well. Um... I, you know, I, I think the matter is more complicated than we can resolve in this uh, episode of the podcast. But I, I do have a response to that if you're if you're open to hearing. I am, yeah. Um, I, I would modify that conclusion in a few ways. You know, like that's fine that that's your conclusion. Like my conclusion is different. I don't think everybody is looking for um, the least charitable way. I think some people are, and I think. Um, there will those people will always be there, and those people have always been there, and it's not necessarily inherent to the internet age. It's just it's just a lot easier to find those people now, or, or to find those messages. So I, I don't think like everyone is like looking for, for the worst possible way, but I think some people are looking for it and will find it. But I also think that as a result, um, it's important to be exceptionally careful about how one comes across on a platform where individual messages can be taken out of context, right? And I think you you, know, you look at this and you, th- you think like, oh, well, like my messages are taken out of context and therefore like the whole system, the whole 
communication, you know, paradigm is suspect, you know? And um, I, I don't think that's entirely incorrect, but I, I do think it's, like, far more nuanced than that. I think that, um, A, like, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt you to be more careful in how you talk to people. Not just you, you, Jeff, but just people in general. Like, it doesn't hurt you to be careful. Uh, and it doesn't hurt you to think about how you might come across, right? Like, it, it, the ability to share your thoughts with thousands of people should be considered as a responsibility and not, um, it sh- should not be taken lightly. And so, um, and many, many of us do take it lightly and it works out fine for most of us, but like some of us, uh, it doesn't work out okay for. And, and I think like, Considering how your comments can come across is is something that's worth one's time, so that's one thing. And then, and then another thing is just that like there's a whole context that you know um, statements like grow like an older man saying grow up to a younger woman like there's a whole context that um, you might not be a aware of or be considering you know when you make statements like that and. Um, that that's also something to to consider as well. So I'm not completely disagreeing with you that like that people will take your interpret your, your words in a bad way and people will twist them. Uh, I think pe- that happens, and I think that's unfortunate. Um, but I also think that there is some you know, and you have admitted like th- there's things you could have done differently. There's the ways you could have been more careful, and I'm just agreeing with that part of what you said as well. Does that make sense? Yes, and I'm 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 taking the note, and I am uh, really trying not to be defensive and understand that I am culpable in a lot of this, and and also with the caveat that ultimately this is about a, a lot of stuff that just doesn't matter, right? It, 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 it in in the grand scheme of things, I'm I had said some stuff about video games, like who cares, right? Um. But on the other hand, I can't help but feel that there is something lost when you are constantly barricading yourself against the least charitable version of what you might say. You know, if you are constantly on guard against the wolves the wolves have kind of won. You know I, what I mean? I, I, a- I would posit that there's vast groups of people who have been on guard their entire life, Jeff. That like clearly so, clearly right? so, that, and, that, I, and that, again, like, that that have that their lived experience is that they always have to be on guard for what they have to say, and that you have now experienced a small part of what other people uh, experience. You know, uh, and that yes. it is is very unpleasant. You know, um, so, you are undoubtedly tr- you are undoubtedly correct. And, but again, that's another, I feel like that short circuits any, so I, I should just shut up is, is, is how I take that is like, you welcome to the reality everybody has experienced. So (laughs) don't be a douchebag, you know, it's like, well, okay, but that doesn't make the observation useless. It no, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't, I, I don't think it, I don't think it, I, I agree. It doesn't make the observation useless. I just think it needs to be uh, contextualized. You know, um, that it's like yes, like we can lament that 
that we live in a world where people cannot express the pure id of their thoughts and that that is not what i'm saying sure, sure. i'm okay. not okay. that is not i'm not wishing for a, a time when i can express the pure id of my thoughts that is not my position at all um I, I don't wish to just yell into the void without consequence. That is, that is not, and I don't think I, anything that I did, you know, right. It was, it was, not, that it was place. not like that. Yeah. But, yeah. but so, so that's a mischaracter. I was, you know, using exaggeration for illustri- illustrative purposes, but I think like, right. um, that, what you're saying is that like, basically in a world where we need to guard against any misinterpretations, um, we communicate less well. Right. Yes. Is what you're saying. Right. Yes. And, 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 and I will completely admit and recognize and it didn't take this moment for me to recognize that I have been outspoken uh, about it for a long time in my life that there are lots of p- individuals and groups that are unfairly held to that standard uh, uh, across not just digital communication, but life. Right. That is that is what you're saying. And I I, that is not a revelation to me. That is not something that it just dawned on me. Uh, But I think there is a level of scale uh, of I think that those problems to me seem to be perpetuated by the technology rather than addressed. Yeah. And and I don't I and that worries me that I feel like. I feel like – whatever. I, I, the, part of the problem is – and I recognize I'm a white male, right? I, I, people are like, yeah, it, feel, it must feel good for you to finally understand. But it also like <laughs> – there's nothing I can say that doesn't turn me into the bad guy, right? I, I'm the bad guy uh, because of who I am and that um, – you know that is I wouldn't, applauded. I that I is applauded that. by people, huh? I, I would not say you're the bad guy because of who you are. I would I would say that one thing that I am learning um, is that it is, and I've communicated this to you before. Is like it is very difficult to be an ally. Like it is, it, it's not an easy job, um, and th- that's something that is has become way more apparent in uh, the last you know year or two. Um, right. so I think that's slightly different than what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I agree with you. Technology, uh, definitely whatever human nature is, technology makes it more. So I completely agree with that part. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a, we're living through a, um, a, a tough time and I understand that that may end up being a, a net positive and that, you know, the, established power structures may or may be crumbling. And I'm trying to be sensitive to the fact that maybe my own privilege is what I'm feeling, uh, being shaken. Uh, I don't believe that is the explanation, but I am trying to be sensitive to the possibility that that's the case. Um, but I also think there's a bigger, uh, a bigger thing afoot. And, uh, I, 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 I do think that, you know, there, there, there's a breakdown of just human communication and want the desire to understand one another. I, I feel like that is really scary. And I don't think that is just 
uh, a function of identity. I do think it is something else. Um, so you know, to, br- to bring it back to movies, I was um, <laughs> I was listening to Brian Koppelman's podcast, The Moment, um, which is you know a, a cool podcast that features people from the industry. Brian Koppelman, he's the guy who is the he wrote Rounders. He he, yeah. he had a small role in Michael Clayton. He's a showrunner for Billions, I think, the Showtime original mm-hmm. series. Yeah, and uh, Tony Gilroy was on the show. Tony Gilroy. Um, who uh, wrote and directed Michael Clayton. Um, he wrote several of the Bourne films uh, and his new movie is Beirut. He also, by the way, uh, so th- this, is, this is fascinating. He, he, he actually gave away a lot of material about like, what happened with Rogue One. You know, like, we all, it was all a mystery. Like, what happened with Rogue One? Like, there's tons of reshoots, right? Um, and Tony Gilroy was brought in to basically save the film, according to Tony Gilroy. And when Tony <laughs> Gilroy was brought in, the director's cut had already been completed, right? So it wasn't like, oh, Tony Gilroy came in like while well, they're still working on the movie and like let's fix these things. Like the movie was already done. It, it was you know it was already in the can. And um, according to reports, they reshot like you know forty percent of the film. So he was responsible for that. Um, he was paid very well for it and. Um, he talked a, a little bit about about uh, what that experience was like. So very, very interesting. But one thing he said that uh, what, what you just said reminded me of, Jeff, was uh, that, like, in his opinion, and we're not even going to talk about our politics here, uh, but in his opinion, you know, the character of Donald Trump was very clear, right? Uh, and, uh, like, that, that Donald Trump is like a... Like a uh, huckster and you know uh, not a particularly successful businessman but like very good at like trying conveying that he was and not particularly intelligent person but very good at like tricking people into thinking he was and very you know very like but that but that one could see through that veneer like like tony gilroy's belief was that one could see through that veneer to to what was underneath and that he thought that the american electorate would serve as a check on that kind of character being elected to office especially considering the power that that person would wield um and Tony Gilroy said he was like super shaken and discouraged by the election because it made him realize that people maybe don't comprehend character as well as he thought they did, right? Like this guy's job is to write, create, and bring to life characters, right? Yeah. Um, and. Uh, and he's like, and he 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 assumes like, oh, the audience will understand this part about this character. The audience will understand this certainly, right? Yeah. And, and but if they aren't able to understand it on a massive scale, uh, as they did with this election, like he questions whether they can understand it, like in fictional films as well. And mm-hmm. and I think you know that's it, it kind of gets to what you're describing, like that of of from your perception, right? That the audience is like not understanding. The character dynamics at play, right? I think I think my thesis would be this: that so much of the response that I got to the tweet was, um, you and and a little bit of what you've you've said here to to me as well was you meaning me, uh, you wrote a dumb thing, and therefore deserve everything you get 
I got that sentiment over and over and over and over again. Uh, you did something dumb. This is so dumb. Therefore, you deserve all of the hate we can muster, all of the whatever, whatever. Whatever you get, you deserve. And I would say that if you and I were talking or I was talking to anybody in person and I said something dumb or even if I you know, didn't consider it to be dumb, something and you went, oh, did you mean this? And I went, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant. I meant this. You would go, oh, OK. And we would you you are interested in understanding what I intended to say. But in this context. Th- there is a, a different rule in play and no one cares about what you intended to say. No one wants to find out your actual meaning. No one cares to have you correct the record. No one is even interested in it. They only care to take whatever meaning they can discern. And because the very fact that you that there is meaning present that you did not intend, that that is a possibility in what you expressed, you have now exposed yourself to whatever you get. And that's on you. Well, that you know, to me... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just, I'm reminded of something that Jeff, the great and wise Jeff Kanata once told me, which is that uh, both things can be true. And what I mean by that is that um, A... Being able to have your thoughts read by 500,000 people in the course of like an hour is an awesome responsibility and you should be exceptionally careful about how you do that and how you, how you exercise that, that privilege. And B, um, people can – the internet can bring out the worst in people and make them read things incredibly and charitably and, and so on. Like I, I think – both things can be true. It's not just one or the other. Does that make sense? It does. And I, th- I think that's fair. Um, I, I just, I'm just depressed by that position that it doesn't matter what you intended to say. All it matters is what I can imply you said, right. what, I, what I can take from your words and twist. And if I can do that, that's your fault. And I just – I don't – I don't think that's productive, and I, I think ultimately it's a breakdown of of our humanity. It's a it's destructive and uh, worrisome to me. All right. Well, on that ominous and sinister note, <laughs> I think we can wrap it up. I appreciate you you engaging me on it, though. I I know uh, it, it, this may have nobody listens to these anyways after dark <laughs> nobody listens to these which is comforting uh but it's a good therapy session for me and and i appreciate you dave very much for uh you know challenging me on on my assumptions and making me consider it and making me talk through it um i will pay you handsomely for your time <laughs> i uh, i care about you jeff i know i know you're trying to do the right thing and so I want to see that you succeed in doing so. You know? that, and, and really that's – I appreciate that. And that's – I think that is the simpler way of, of saying what I've been trying to say uh, inarticulately this whole time is I'm trying to do the right thing. And uh, you know, that increasingly seems like a futile exercise of effort. Well, I, think, know, what feels- what I, I think the point I'm making is that trying is no longer sufficient. Like you, you right. must actually do the right thing and – and execute at an extremely high level of excellence, or else 
um, terrible things will happen, or, or else you'll be <laughs> no, or else right. you'll be misinterpreted, or ter- you know, like like carelessness is no longer acceptable. Like, and and sometimes even if you aren't aren't careless, are not careless, like it, it can still result in misunderstandings. But like, um, but but basically that like it, it's no like. The, what what I think we both agree with is that it's no longer acceptable to just try to do your best on on the internet. Try to try to be an ally, to try to do the right thing. Um, it's it's not enough anymore, and and we can lament that. But I, I do think it is the reality now. So, um, and I think your your experience this last week uh, proves that that's true. So, okay, well. If you're still listening, thanks, and uh, hope you enjoyed the question mark. Uh, <laughs> we this, talked about your vacation. That was fun. This diversion from uh, from the normal uh, course of events. Um, thanks a lot for listening. Uh, we'll see you next time. Everybody felt they were there at the beginning of the great experiment. Like we were the chosen people. <laughs> I'm here in one of the largest ranches in the Northwest. Today, it's Rajneesh Purim because a prominent Indian guru and his followers bought it. Our vision was to create a community based on compassion and sharing. Bhagwan's agenda was simply to raise the consciousness of humanity. That was his goal. America was land of promise. It was my conviction we will have no problems. I don't think America has a place for these people. Everyone in Antelope mistrusts Rajneesh. I want that guru and his evil influence out of my city. They're run by satanic power. There is talk of vigilantes who may seek revenge on the Rajneeshis. That was from the trailer for Wild Wild Country, uh, a new docu-series available on Netflix. It was directed by McLean Way and Chapman Way, produced, or I should say executive produced, by Mark Duplass and Jay Duplass. Uh, McLean and Chapman are brothers, as are Mark and Jay. Uh, Before we get to our review of Wild Wild Country, I wanted to give a shout-out to the people who have donated to the show over the course of the last couple weeks. Um, I wanted to thank Angie Wu, Marnie Phillips... Stephen Garrity from Canada, Jesse Mahan, Adam A. from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and James Chapman from Vancouver, British Columbia. Thank you so, so much for your contributions. We really appreciate it. Yes. I also wanted to thank uh, new subscribers, people who have donated at the rate of $2 per month. Some people also create an automatic payment profile uh, on PayPal and just uh, PayPal us a certain amount every month. We really appreciate that. Thanks to Andy Potts, Scott Beeler, uh, Oscar Segoviano, Matt Cody Digital, David Fine, and Jorge Albor. Thanks so much for your uh, subscriptions every month and uh, for supporting us in this way. Uh, as you heard, you know Jeff's got another kid on the way. That's another mouth to feed, right, Jeff? <laughs> it is. I mean, that is. And, yes, and that's that's where the donations go is straight <laughs> into, into the mouths of my children, into the mouths of Jeffrey's children. Yeah, I so. feed them dollar bills. It's that's not right. efficient. It's coins it's sometimes efficient. too, but it's really unhealthy <laughs> that way. Yeah. Anyway, uh, if you want to support what we do here on the podcast and uh, help us defray the cost of seeing movies and putting on the show, uh, 
do, do us a favor. Go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. Or go to slash film.com. Use the slash filmcast tab and click on the PayPal links on the side of the page. We really appreciate everyone who donates. And uh, you guys are awesome. It's really helping us to keep the show going. Okay. I like I like the fact that we uh, that people have gone to the trouble of setting up uh, recurring automatic payments. Yes. When there's literally a website that is made to do just that and we just don't. No, well, we sometimes we uh, we allow people the option to do like uh, $2 a month and right. sometimes people want to do $1 a month or sometimes they want to do $5 a month. So I'm, I'm just saying there's literally a, this thing called Patreon that we I see. I see. You're giving me a hard do. time because we have not launched a Patreon page. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> it's fine. We, we just, still got to – I think I promised you that we would launch that at the end of last year and I yeah. never did. Yeah, you said that was your uh, project for 2017, I think. Yeah, did, did I, when I said 2017, I meant 2018. But, ah, know. good. That's good. Soon. Soon, Jeff. Soon. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, Wild Wild Country. Let's read the plot summary. When a controversial guru builds a utopian city in the Oregon desert, it causes a massive conflict with local ranchers. This docuseries chronicles the conflict, which leads to the first bioterror attack in the United States and a massive case of illegal wiretapping. It is a pivotal but largely forgotten time in American cultural history that tested the country's tolerance for the separation of church and state. End quote. So, Jeff, uh, I you know, was alive during uh, many of the events of Wild Wild Country, but I had not heard of any of this stuff had you heard of any of the stuff with bhagwan uh, uh bhagwan Sri rajneesh or or anything like that before you started watching this no and i was continually struck by how improbable that seems to be right because throughout the series it seems very clear that this was a national news story i mean Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, Ted Koppel are all featured in talking about this in the in the documentary and there's even at one point a Johnny Carson routine yeah. where he's singing a song about them that's very specific where you have to be very knowledgeable about what's going on in order to get the <laughs> jokes. And I feel like, you know, I I know about Jonestown, you know, I, I, I drink the Kool-Aid is a reference that I totally understand, you know, and it feels like because this particular religious sect uh, had such – prominent iconography like the red clothing yeah. it feels like that should be in the zeitgeist right i should yeah. be aware even if i didn't know the details of what happened i should be aware of a nationally recognized cult that wore red like why do i not know about that the experience of watching this documentary is really surreal because yeah all that stuff is happening there's national coverage everywhere it would be like watching oj made in america or uh you know the people versus oj simpson like the miniseries Without having prior knowledge of O.J. Simpson, and if you're watching yeah. it, you're thinking to yourself, "Whoa! Like this seems like it was a huge deal at the time." And like, <laughs> yeah. how do I not know about this? <laughs> That's right. So you're, you're we're watching this documentary, and we're thinking to myself, "Man, I can't believe I have not heard a single, not even like a like a lingering like a like an SNL reference or something." You know, it's just right. like. Nothing. It, it has so it, – it, And yet, and yet the, the, the hooks are there for it to have – like the red clothing alone feels like it should be a thing everybody – when people say drink the Kool-Aid or it should be like – or, you know, the white Nikes for the, for the Hale-Bopp people, you know, the, yeah. the, those are like made to be memes, right? That's a, yeah. that's a thing. You would think that you would, everybody would know about the red clothing thing, but no. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, it would be – here's another ex- analogy, okay? It would be like if a really 
well-respected director made the top grossing film of all time and then no one ever heard about it again. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so (laughs) not based on a true story at all. So, um, so we both watch wild, wild country and, uh, I think we are both bowled over by it to the extent that I saw you tweet about it and I tweeted about it. Um, and we're, you know, I think, I said to you, Jeff, we got to talk about this. Like, yeah, yeah. we got to talk. We got to exercise our demons about Wild Wild Country. Uh, yeah, I think so- that's a great way to put it too, because this is a, I think, a docu series that stays with you. It is one that does not provide any easy answers. It doesn't even provide easy questions. Like yeah. the questions that you come out, it, it, it's it's very conflicting to even understand what to be asking of yourself once right. once you finish watching it um well, and i think we're yeah let's ahead. talk about like overall thoughts and then like i think we really should dive into quote-unquote spoilers for real life for this thing i mean for sure uh, so this is i'm glad six- that i didn't know anything in, in, a, in a sense because everything because it continues to be astounding uh every episode you know like two episodes in of a six episode series i was like where can this possibly go from here you know it's it, it does it is useful to to protect yourself from spoilers to to see this. Yeah. So overall, this is a six hour long docu series, right? It's yeah. it's six episodes, and each episode is the full hour. And I, I didn't realize like how substantial that was until I tried to get through all of them because it, really, you know, most of the time when you watch a one hour TV show, it's forty minutes plus commercials. But this yeah. is like six full hours. Plus, some of them are like an hour, six minutes, an yeah. hour, seven minutes. Yeah, it's it's so, it's meaty. If you wanted to tell someone like whether or not this is worth their six hour investment, what would you say? I hundred percent think it's worth your your six hour investment. I mean, it's a fascinating story, and I think uh, it it certainly made me have some very very interesting conversations with my wife, and I think just conversations with myself about what I believe and what what I mean. I think ultimately. It's a very well-made documentary, yeah. from just beautifully shot, well-constructed, expertly woven, like the the weaving of the yarn, you know, telling you this tale and stringing it out and giving you breadcrumbs to, that something greater is going to happen just around the next corner. It is so beautifully structured that way. Um, and that is interesting to see. The fact that they got the amount of footage that they got hundreds is Hundreds of hours. Hundreds of it's hours. It's unbelievable. Yeah. That, uh, Everything that they are talking about, you see. It is uh, there. Are almost there are very few moments. There's a few moments where they use uh, hand-drawn, like animation-style, uh, you know, artist renderings of of what may have happened. But it's all very rare because the amount of footage that they have from that time, and that alone is a remarkable part of the show, which is uh, over and above what it's about. Is just like thirty years time difference being shown immediately. Is just wow, the eighties don't feel like they were that long ago, but they really were. And look at these people like, oh, they're old now. (laughs) And you see them young and old, like back to back. And it's very jarring. But, but just from a purely, uh, you know, appreciation of, of a well-structured, well-made documentary, it's worth your time. But also the subject matter is extremely powerful. I have very conflicted emotions about certain aspects of it in, in insofar as I think um, the movie, like many documentaries, is almost entirely told through interviews with the subjects uh, of the of the documentary. And you are he- seeing them reflect on the time we're talking about. 
and you get many sides of the story. But at no point in the series do each of the individual sides uh, – are they asked to sort of reconcile the other side. There, we always see people talking from their own point of view and we are sympathetic to their – at least the filmmakers seem to be sympathetic to their point of view at the time that they're telling it. And yet each point of view contradicts in some way the other and you never – the filmmakers never ask any of them to reconcile that. And I found that very problematic. I found, I found it very unsatisfying on a certain level. I understand why they might want to do that in the sense that it made me, the viewer, have to reconcile those things and try to decide how I feel about things. But when somebody says something and then somebody says something else and you're like, well, how come you're not asking them about what this other person said? Uh, I found that very um, very frustrating as a viewer. So there was some of that. But I think overall it was an extraordinary experience, harrowing at times, jarring and shocking at others, uh, emotional. You know, it, it really made me think about what's important in life. It, it is – it's a really Im- impactful thing and I think one I can heartily recommend. I feel very much the same way as you, Jeff. I think it's definitely worth your time. Uh with a few caveats. First of all, one of the things you said was how well they were able to weave this story together, and that cannot be understated. You have hundreds of hours of archival footage. You have, I'm guessing, dozens of hours of interviews, at least. Yeah. And to be able to tell a linear narrative from that, is, it takes an exceptional amount of skill. And I think uh, the uh, Way brothers pull that off uh, and... Like this thing is sprawling, man. This this story yeah. is sprawling. It reaches to many aspects of American life, from media to entertainment to religion to law uh, to celebrity, and it is somehow able to like effectively weave them all together, juggle all these balls, keep them in the air, and still tell this narrative story that's compelling. That is just a, a huge and towering achievement, in my opinion. I agree. No, I didn't think it was a flaw. I didn't think it was flawless. I think you bring up some good points. Um, I listened to Film Spotting SVU's review of this uh, series today, and uh, they brought up some really good points as well. One of the points they brought up was that they wish there had been more interviews with the rank and file of uh, the uh, Rajneesh Param, right? Like that. Basically, yeah. the the interviews are all the leadership, right? The, the people high up, but you, you don't really get a sense of what it's like to be on the ground, uh, at this thing. And well, you don't get a sense of, of even from the leadership, you don't get a sense of what their day to day, day to day life was like. Yeah. And what, exactly. why, th- why they were really even drawn to this. I mean, you, yeah. there's one character who explains how he was, how he came to actually several characters explain how they came to it. Yeah. But at a certain point, there are thousands of people that are upending their lives and traveling there. And you don't get a sense of how that word is getting out, what that – what is this thing in a sense? Uh, there's, there's kind of not even a sense of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also think that uh, it is uh, – you know, there are so, – so, so to allude to what you were saying earlier, uh, there are many different ways you can interview a person, Right. You can interview them in a very confrontational manner or you can interview them in a way that is like tell the story in a way that makes you look as good as possible. Like you, you can, The interviewer can ask the subject, please recount the story in a way that makes you look as good as possible. And it, it feels like the interviewers 
or the directors chose the latter path, right? Right. And that they weren't like, well, what? Yeah, what about so and so? I'm going to confront you with evidence of blah. You know, they, right. they didn't do any of that. Right. It doesn't seem like they challenged them on specific points. They just allowed them to say their perspective and let it be their perspective and then show other people's perspective. But in each case, and I think on all sides, there were moments where I was like, well, why aren't you asking about this other information that we know? Why aren't you challenging them to reconcile that so that we understand how they can even have the perspective that they have. But instead the filmmakers seemed very content to just let them have their say and not, not push them back on any of it. In court, there is a saying, uh, you know, your honor permission to treat the witness as hostile, you know, right. when you want to cross examine the person, uh, it feels like none of like, this is the opposite of that in terms of interview right. style. Right. Uh, also I do think that if you're looking for a, a documentary that has a lot of narrative momentum, uh, I don't actually feel – I feel like at times this thing dragged from a storytelling perspective. Well, Now, from a, a, a uh, atmospheric and tone perspective, they just used a lot of that archival footage. And I think you know the, it felt at times to me like they, they used it because they had it. I'm sure they had much more, but uh, there, there were times when I was like, I, I really want to get on with this story. And instead I'm watching this archival footage of this um, – you know, this dance party that happened at, at the compound and I've already seen like 30 minutes of dance party footage before, you know, like, yeah, it felt like it wanted you to luxuriate in the atmosphere of this place. And so I'm just saying as a matter of taste, I'm not even saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying like, that's not really my what I go in for when I watch a documentary like this. I want it to be like, mm, give me the events, like, let's move it. Uh, and it doesn't. It, I really felt those six hours. Like it really felt like uh, at times it was a, a bit of a slog, just because I, I wanted to find out how this story all ends. And the, uh, the amazing thing I think is that it feels like somebody set out to make a documentary in the time. You know, like the, the fact that they were making this all in hindsight with whatever footage they came they <laughs> they yeah. came up with. It doesn't feel like that. It feels like they shot the specific things they needed, right. you know, because there is so it's remarkable that there were that many cameras in this place seemingly rolling at all times because y you get, you get visual evidence from the early eighties for almost everything that they talk about. It's completely insane that there were that much just documentary of the time at the time. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Okay. Well, those are our overall thoughts on wild, wild country. Totally worth checking out, and uh, after you check it out, you should listen to our spoiler discussion that's going to happen starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Do you want to see this coming? No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. All right, Jeff, so much crazy shit to discuss here. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, so I, I, I'm going to say this right off the bat. First of all, uh, Matthew D. Murphy or Matthew Murphy is in the chat. He's also tweeting at us as we're broadcasting right now, and he's saying – uh, I'm a bit older than you guys. I definitely recall Rajneesh being in the news. The fact that the story did not end in violence but just sort of fizzled out kept it from having much lingering power at the time. That's what my wife uh, surmised yeah. as well. But we both, as we were watching it, texted our parents yeah. and said, hey, do you remember this? And uh, my wife's parents was like, yeah, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember something about red clothes. But 
I, I, and I totally get the idea of, you know, I remember Hailbot people and, and, uh, you know, uh, Kool-Aid people because they all had mass suicides. I, I, I understand that that's a much more impactful, uh, thing to stick in the social consciousness, but I still feels like this was a big deal at the time. And it just, to have it be completely out of the zeitgeist seems impossible. It is remarkable, yeah. It's fascinating to think about what is it that keeps things in the national consciousness, and you know what are the characteristics of things that that make people remember. Um, so another thing I wanted to mention is just I've I've done some reading about the real life situation, not a ton, but I've done a decent amount. You know, I've read like half a dozen to a dozen articles about this, and one of the things that uh, one of the more troubling. Uh, things that I read about was uh, Ma Ananchila, right? And and how uh, the story in the movie really doesn't do a good job of depicting how absolutely vicious she is. I think yeah. uh, I think many people will watch this Wild Wild Country and walk away with an understanding that Ma Ananchila is a sociopath. You know, I think I think that's a fact. There's speculation that she killed people because like people, certain people mysteriously fell ill and then died. You know what I mean? And supposedly there are uh, there's evidence of forced abortions, right? Which right. Like, it, the, there's all the docuseries completely it, avoids. Does not talk about that at all. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of stuff actually that it doesn't talk about in general, uh, like the fact that it was almost totalitarian in the compound. People's uh, mail was monitored, and you know, there, there's there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it into the film. And you know, you can't fit everything into the film, but it, there were just a bunch of things that like raised my eyebrow of why you know why wasn't that included? You know, or yeah. was there a reason that wasn't included? Right, like because. And everyone here in this documentary is worthy of a suspicion, right? So uh, because there's all these omissions, I'm kind of like, huh, why didn't they include that, um, you know, the people who were secretary before Ma Anansila, like, died of mysterious circumstances or, you know, or what, whatever accusations people have leveled against her? Um, I will say this. She is an incredibly charismatic and compelling figure in this yeah. documentary, right? I mean, when I'm watching it, I think to myself, man, I want to – I understand why this woman held you know, millions of people in her thrall back in the day. Uh, she, she spins a good yarn and she's really good right. with words. Um, so – and that's true of actually pretty much all the interview subjects. There's not that many. You know, There's probably no. like a dozen interview subjects or so. And all of them are really good. And my guess is they, they interviewed more people and they just chose the best ones to tell the story is my guess. Um, but I don't know. I, I mean who, there's an art to choosing a good interview subject and I think uh, the people who directed this nailed it in terms of uh, how compelling they were. So Yes, and especially uh, where Ma'anan Sheila ends up by the end of the series, it, it certainly feels very sympathetic and you, you feel like, oh my gosh, she's really doing good with her with her life at this point and so all of that colors this perception of of really the the horror of what she may have been responsible for at that time um but i think the overall from for me the takeaway from this entire docuseries is that power corrupts right and uh i, I don't know if she was this creature before she got power and if she's this creature after she got power, after she was out of power, but certainly the power seems to have uh, brought out some really horrific tendencies. 
But I also don't think that the U.S. government comes out uh, unscathed from from the. I, I really don't think there's a purely sympathetic side at all. The the yeah. townspeople of uh, Antelope, I don't think, are without some criticism. There, there's really no clear side to take, and that's kind of what I find both so compelling and so frustrating about this series is because I, I wish that some of them had to answer for some of the things that I find. Uh, easy to criticize, right? Uh, and none of them ever at any point have to answer for for any of that. But also, I find this so compelling because I come out of it thinking, my God, is it, is it impossible to create a utopia, right? Are we as human beings, even with the best of intentions, are, are we just doomed to destroy ourselves and to fall into corruption and, you know, or it was this not a utopia was this never a utopia was it a scam from the start you know all of those things i find to be very interesting questions and also you know the fact that it's titled wild wild country i don't think is a mistake it, it is as much about our country as it is about this cult uh and and i i think a lot of the uh, the commentary that this docu series brings up is pretty critical of how we as a country handle anything different, anything that we don't like. I mean, in a large sense, there's definitely culpability on Manashila and the the cult's side, right? The 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 way they handled things was unlawful and despicable and immoral. For a large sense, they overreacted, they got defensive, and they did things that they should not have done. But had they just been able to have this ranch and be in this little valley on, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't want to disturb anybody. And it seems to me that things were not, they, they were not, uh, the instigator of, of the, the sort of bad direction that this all went into. They, they didn't do anything to prevent the bad direction. In fact, they inflamed it, but it, it, it is a complex and interesting series of events that has no easy answers. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Wild Wild Country, I, I think that is uh, actually based off of a line in a song from the soundtrack. Um, Definitely. Yeah. Yes. But, but I think it is, is, uh, but is, yeah, clearly... it is distinctly about American life. Like it's, it's yeah. almost like this is a story that in, in many ways could only happen in America. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> And it raises all these issues. You know, I've already said the phrase from Jeff Kanata during this podcast, like, both things can be true. Uh, in this case, it's like all things can be true. And right. what I mean by that is uh, cults can be extremely dangerous and the United States government can be frightening in how it exercises power to go after specific individuals and the people living next to the cult can also be xenophobic hicks. You know, like right. all yeah. the things can be true at the same time, right? Right. Uh, and y y the whole time I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, these guys are being so unfair to the, the Rajneesh Puram people. The, uh, you know, like how, how could they be so unfair? It's, it's unconscionable. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> and then it's like, oh, they tried to, the, then the people in the town, the, the uh, Rajneesh Puram, load up with uh, hundreds of weapons right. and, and uh, many, many bullets. And it's like, oh, you know, maybe the people in town have a point. Um, 
and then the U.S. government starts going after these people, and I'm thinking to myself, man, that's so unjust. This is this is does not feel like a proper exercise of the due process. And then uh, all the people in Rajneeshpuram start poisoning people in the town and feeding uh, blended beavers into the water supply. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and then I'm like, yeah, right. maybe they should go after them. You know, it's it. The right. whole time I'm vacillating back and forth between where my loyalties are. Uh, it's an it's a crazy story. It's a but crazy I agree story. with you that the biggest missing element is the perspective from just like Joe follower, you yeah. know, or Joanne follower. The the. What was the ex- – clearly these people were moved to be there almost universally when any interview is happening in the t- at the time period and they're talking about are you going to leave. They're like, no, I would never want to – I love it here. This is the best. You know, There's clearly <laughs> – so- I don't know if that is you know, evidence of, of sort of a brainwashing or a, a groupthink mentality that whatever – there's just no sense of what they were getting out of it mm-hmm. You know, other than – we get to have a lot of sex, I guess, and uh, you know this. this, did, this sort did of they like? I don't even know. Like you, it alludes to sex at some points, but you have no idea what. Yeah, what people are getting out of it exactly? Well, uh, you know, yes, you you feel like every time anybody talks about what they what they their impression, any outsider talks about their impression of it, it's that all I I heard constant sex sounds, and the first time I walked in, some people were having sex on a bridge. It's like all the all the people. But then again, that is a very biased perception, right? Is that this very, you know, closed-minded view of any kind of promiscuity or lack of uh, marriage as an institution might color that impression even. So there is no sense of what – why people by the thousands were drawn there, what they got really out of the experience, what – even what um, uh, Bhagwan himself – meant to people i mean we get sort of vague notions of him being this beautiful man and but he's silent for you know he has his vow of silence for nearly the entire time period that is covered in this documentary so what is even so special about him i think you hear bhagwan say maybe 20 lines in the course of six hours right like right you you only get a hint of what makes him a really compelling figure in this movie or this, uh, and you get a sense at the end that he has written dozens of books, but that is like this one thing thrown in quite at the end, and you, you're like, what, "What is it? What is his teaching other than, you know, <laughs> sex is okay, we're have a lot of laughter, and then this kind of very specific meditation technique that they go over at the very in the very first episode." Other than that, you don't really have a sense of what this is even about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and for, I th- and for a show that is ostensibly about religion, it is almost not at all about religion. It yeah. is almost not. It doesn't talk about religion. I don't think anybody mentions God. It, 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 maybe once or twice in the entire series does somebody even mention God. It's, it's about not spirituality, I think. But yeah, right. I, but I mean, like, it's not it, that isn't really even addressed as to. What this? It's a very nebulous idea of spirituality. You yeah, know? I think you're pointing to that this this documentary really had some gaps that I, I, you know we feel probably could have could have helped uh, with illustrating exactly what exactly was going on at the compound, what what people felt about it, and just making it more comprehensible, like what what exactly uh, these followers were all about. But yeah. instead, it's really more concerned with. The human drama with Ma Anand Sheila and also uh, the bureaucratic gears of justice 
grinding into place as uh, as they try to take this, take these people down. Uh, in, in terms of you know memorable moments from this docu series, I think as I'm thinking through them, right, obviously. Poisoning an entire town via salad bar felt like a really uh, – it's just so insane. I can't believe I hadn't heard of it before, you know, right. that something like this yeah. had happened. Uh, and so – and or feeding blended beavers into the into the water supply, you know, that's, that's pretty crazy. Um, but there were also many other moments where you just feel like some kind of norm has been violated, which is something we obviously are used to these days, but where you feel like – Oh, like really? Like the government actually did that, or oh, really? These these group of followers did that, yeah. and I think it is a little bit maddeningly vague about what is it really that led to all the terrible things happening, right? Right. Who is right. actually responsible for these terrible things? And um, I don't think Ma Ananshila takes responsibility for a lot of. It. She doesn't say I was the one that did the poisoning. Right. No, but nobody says, "Hey, did you do the poisoning?" Yeah. No, there's no, there's no moment where it's like, "Ma Nashila, did you poison those people?" Right. You know? it's so, it's so bizarre. You know that. Yeah, they don't say, "Hey, we got this crazy story from this guy about blended beavers into the water supply." Did did you know anything about that? You maybe know, he, no... they did that interview afterwards. Um, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but uh, they did. You know, she did talk a little bit about the attempted murder of that guy. That's the only crime. That any of the people really confess to in this series, but the, there's all these other crimes like uh, developing a bioweapon, and they had labs. Who who made that call? Who made the decision to do that? You know how how did that happen? Right? I I guess I guess it sounds like we're complaining about what the the documentary didn't show you. You know because right. I think there are some things that we really wanted to see, but at the same time, yeah, there, there were. The documentary is great, but it's just like, oh man, this this came. There, there, all these troubling things came up, and I wanted to know more about how these decisions were arrived at. Uh, were there any sort of critical moments in the docu series for you? Oh, I mean, so many. Uh, I feel like there was a critical moment in every episode. Uh, I mean, it, it is so. Each episode turns, and you you. I feel like how can there be how can there still be three more episodes to go like yeah. this is the craziest thing I've ever there's no way this continues and yet it still does um I think uh, the, the moment, homeless people thing was also crazy uh, see now th- that is a perfect example of I think what this documentary was for me because there there it is a a, a decision that is has its own tension. It is in conflict with itself because on the one hand, that is the most beautiful thing I could imagine. Yeah. Then just welcoming these cast offs into their community, feeding them, housing them, bathing them, treating them like human beings. And you see, you see evidence of lives changed people having dignity and feeling like human beings again and having friendships and there's one uh, late in the one of the later episodes one of the guys is like I don't ever want to leave here because I you know they finally I finally found people that I, I found a family I found people that treated me like a human being such an exquisite thing to do is a, a selfless and caring and beautiful beautiful and yet clearly it seems the decision was made from a tactical, ruthless position of we are going to get more votes for this city council uh, <laughs> situation. And when that 
plan was over, those people, many of whom, many of those people were cast out. And now, before that plan was over, they were drugged as well. Right. But 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 again, it's like clearly the response was way over the line and illegal and wrong. But also, if there were these people that were causing problems and they took on people with mental health issues that they didn't anticipate, like you can sort of understand how that might be problematic for people that are idealistic and don't consider what they're doing. So everything seems for me to be in this weird tension, this conflict of like, this is a beautiful experiment. This is a beautiful idea of, hey, what if we did all just love each other and laugh more often? And is it possible to be diff- so different that you can make the world better? Can you create a utopian society? The, just the notion of what they did to the landscape of that area, which, by the way, is covered in such a brief moment. And it's like, how the fuck did they do that? You know, that. <laughs> Oh, we dammed up the rivers and we, you know, we changed the the composition of the land and we turned it into irrigated and everything. It's like that's an insanely incredible thing to have pulled off. So in in one sense it's like this this beautiful experiment, this this really I think admirable concept if in fact it was you know actually that concept if it wasn't a cynical um uh you know facade uh, but if that is actually what they were trying to do and clearly a lot of people believed it how terrible is it that you can't pull that off because you're just too different like americans just decide oh you're too different like if they hadn't dressed all in red maybe things wouldn't have been so bad right people wouldn't have had their hackles up uh, my um, wife and I. W- no, I'm pretty sure they would have done evil things. Uh, you're saying you're saying terrible things only happened because people tried to force them out. Is that what you're saying? I like, think there's an argument to be made that if they had just bought this land and created this place, and no one in the surrounding area tried to stop them, that they wouldn't have. I mean, maybe Ma'anan Sheila still in her reverence for. Bhagwan would have terrorized her own community, but I don't think it would have spilled over its own borders into poisoning the townspeople and doing and messing with politics. I think all of those tactics were forced. And, and again, I'm not defending them. That was wrong for them to do. But I don't think they would ever have even thought beyond their borders except for the fact that they were forced to. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how I feel, but I, I think you're right to some extent. But you know, the article that I read at the Daily Beast, which I'd recommend anyone check out, is called "Wild Wild Country: A Rajneeshi Cult Insider on the Horrors um, That the Netflix Series Left Out." Uh, and she writes here, uh, Satya Franklin writes here, quote, barely touched upon in the documentary is the underlying story of how easily spiritual goals can be perverted when people suspend their critical judgment and turn a blind eye to signs of corruption and escalating totalitarianism, which I explored at length in a book that I wrote about the subject, end quote. Mm. Uh, and talks about basically what a hellish experience it was living inside the compound. So I, I guess what I'm saying is, it's nice to imagine that, oh, if we, if we just hadn't been uh, really defensive and xenophobic and feared difference, like, everything would have been fine. Uh, I, it's nice to think that that's the case. Well, I but think I, I don't, that – I don't think if, that it is, you know? I th- 
here's my position and I could be completely wrong and I look forward to you challenging me on it. My position is if they don't all wear red and they're not guided by a guy that kind of looks funny and foreign, it's Scientology. Mm -hmm. You know, Scientology is – Well, that that religion has totally been up and up, right? (laughs) No, I'm not. I'm not arguing whether it's on the up and up. That's not my point. My point is that they're allowed to be. They're 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 not. No one fucks with them because they integrate into modern life in a more seamless way. They wear suits and they buy property and they're you know they're 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 not dressing all in red and and having sex in front of you. They're. they're I think the all of the atrocities that happen within the borders of the. Scientology society that we hear leaked out and we hear are horrible are don't cause the FBI to raid them <laughs> because they don't I think rustle up the same kind of xenophobic feelings that people all dressing in red and and preaching about pre, free love do. I, I think there's some I, I mostly disagree with what you just said. I I think there's some truth to it. I agree that they definitely. The Rajneeshis definitely position themselves as very, very different in terms of uh, outward appearance and also how they behaved, certainly. Uh, but I, I also feel like it's, it, people do hassle Scientologists you know, all the time. Uh, and the reason the FBI raided them is because of uh, Bhagwan's own errors. Like he should not have, like he he declared that oh so and so stole from me and you know was fraudulent and so and that in, basically invited law enforcement into their into their compound. You know, so I, I guess yeah. I, I just feel like they're so the, the circumstances are so different that I I am really hesitant to draw any generalizable things from from this specific case. I think it is just a total loss for humanity in terms of like everyone looks bad. Um the people who live nearby who who resist difference at all costs, um the uh Rajneeshis who uh clearly are engaged engaged in dangerous and duplicitous behavior and also the US government which feels like it's abusing its power. Uh, to target people that they just don't like, they they feel like they shouldn't be here, and they're going to do whatever they can to get rid of them. You know, I I it, do, I completely agree with all of that, I, I, but I I also think that perhaps I come out a little more sympathetic to the ideals that the Rajneeshis were attempting to, uh, or at least gave lip service to satisfying. Uh, I, I I do have a sympathy to to that, and I I would feel bad if we lived in a world where you just like simply because of momentum you can't create a utopia, right? I, I, it's a sad. I think that's a sad commentary. And now I don't. Again, I do believe that they went over the line. There, there's clearly no argument there, and I don't know how much of that is just Sheila. Or if that is a broader systemic problem within that that religion, uh, which you know may indict the entire endeavor, you know that may be a may undermine the entire premise. But in in absence of that, I think the premise is kind of compelling. Like, hey, let's have our let's create a better world by loving each other, laughing a lot, and living in harmony with nature. Like those are, that's a pretty cool idea and it sucks that it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're saying, Oh, it, the, the, the reason it didn't work was primarily, uh, because 
external forces acted upon it to make it not work. And I'm saying I think it is inherently unstable. You know, uh, humanity you're, well, you're, is inherently unstable. Uh, well, I, I, I think that the catalyst was that external forces. But I, I do believe that power corrupts, right? I think that's the, the lesson is that if you create a society like this and have a power structure, power will corrupt. Um, and unfortunately, it's had a very strict power structure, it seems. Uh, and and so that's that's what happened. That was one of the interesting elements of the series is that this is this uh, Bhagwan guy was somebody who didn't believe that being extremely spiritual needed to be separate from capitalism or making a lot of money. Right. Uh, and that made him a very compelling figure that wanted to be that, that I'm sure people wanted to emulate. Um, yeah, so, you don't really get a sense of of whether he's on the up and up uh, throughout. Yeah, I mean, you it's know? asserted at the end of the of the series that the entire thing was a con, right? Like the idea is introduced, and I, I don't know that it's ever confirmed. But, I, but again, I, it's asserted by people who have a vested interest in believing that. Right. Right. Exactly. Also, you know, Jeff, you were saying Scientology and, and comparing, and the thing is, as far as I understand, these people uh, are still uh, in the world, right? Like they're still. People who are followers of his teachings, who like all around the country, all around the the world, they're still those still exist. So, I I just that's why I didn't really agree with your Scientology analogy. Is like, yeah, these people are still around too, and uh, I think the way the the documentary ends, kind of showing people worshiping around the world and and all all the potential that that uh, that has, is rather chilling. So, um, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I guess it is chilling. I, you know, you talk about. Um moments uh, from the, the docuseries that stand out and you referenced this just a moment ago the the moment where Bhagwan breaks his four-year silence and starts yeah. talking shit talking mad shit <laughs> you know uh that is a really chilling moment because you feel like here's this guy who is held up as as this pure force of light and positivity and he's straight up pissed you know like (laughs) he is angry and uh just there to get revenge (laughs) and that to me was like whoa there's a darkness in this dude that hadn't really been revealed up to this point and uh, you know that that to me was like whoa is this all just like what did he do all day what did he do all day (laughs) I'll say one other thing as as we're wrapping up here about what's great about this documentary is all the subjects tell uh, when they're recounting the story, they tell the story in such a way as though they didn't know what the ending was. Yeah, right? it's awesome. It, it, yeah. It's really brilliant narratively. It it actually reminds me of how reality TV shows do it, right? Like if you ever watch a reality TV show, everything <laughs> you're seeing is an incredibly manufactured process. So yeah. for instance, you're watching Top Chef and they're like the guy, the, the, someone's doing it, you know, an interview afterwards, and he's saying, you know, you know, right when I was cooking my thing, I like my, cooking my my dish, I, I I felt like, man, it would feel really great to win right now, you know, like, and they're recounting it as though they're actually going through it right then. There's a great Saturday Night Live parody of this, by the way, if you've seen, yeah, the, they've uh, done it a few times, yeah, the, 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 yeah, it's like. Uh, the dude's hanging out, right? The, yeah, the yeah, the I, and, yeah. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? You know, they do the <laughs> they go to the uh, the interviews, which and it's as if they're speaking their inner monologue right. in the moment. Yeah, right. But see, the thing is, for reality shows, you can audition those people, right? Those right. people can be actors sometimes. 
you can make sure they're screen ready. These people actually lived through the events, you know, <laughs> like they could not, yeah. they probably selected who would be in the documentary, but uh, the way they told the story was very unsullied and spoiler free. And I, I, I agree. I think that that, is, that shows a, a really disciplined uh, questioning yes. situation where it's like, let's, let's talk through, like, how did you come to this? What were you, yeah. you know, I think that's a very, you know, interesting way of doing it there was one moment though it was funny there's one moment the rancher guy uh there's one moment he used the past tense on something and i was like he just revealed that that this is not going to stay around for very long interesting it was was so out of but it it was yeah but it was an aberration that you know everything else was so well narrated It, it just was really well put together in a lot of ways so for sure any closing thoughts jeff on Wild Wild Country, I, uh, you know, I, I think we've talked about some of the positives and the negatives, but overall, it is a really worthwhile experience. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it is. I did you think it was too long or too short? Yeah, like I said, I think it really did drag a little bit, uh, but that, that's just because I wanted the st- the facts, you know, just the facts. Yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't need all the atmospherics of copious use of the b-roll you know they just used a ton it's like they had it so they might as well use it it's what it felt like some of the time it helps create this mood but i wasn't super interested in that you know i just wanted to know what happened with the story that i had no idea what it was you know yeah it's an extraordinary thing and the fact that they had all of that footage is all the more extraordinary. I wish I wish they had just even mentioned how they got the footage. Who who is is it the the lawyer guys' footage? Who, how did they even come to that? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of questions. A lot of questions. A lot of questions. And I yeah, think we'll almost be, too we'll many. probably be hearing more about it in the days to come. You know, I think yeah, this is just starting to have its impact felt in popular culture. Um, so, all right. That's it. Oh, I want to say one oh, one yeah. more quick thing uh, that I that I, I would kick myself if I didn't say uh, the process early 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 in the series when they show like what it's like to be doing this stuff and all the townspeople are like it was so weird they're just writhing all over minus the nudity it's basically like being in acting school so <laughs> I found it very un strange <laughs> very very normal it's a you're like if you're weirded out by that uh, you can't don't go to acting school because it's basically that all right fair enough Jeffrey. <laughs> fair enough all right that's all for today next week we'll be reviewing avengers infinity war and jeff i think you're you're having your kid on the same day, right? That you're seeing. It yeah, we infinity. scheduled our uh, our C-section so that I wouldn't have to miss my screening mm. of uh, Avengers because mm. I have priorities. I mean, one of them is a paradigm-altering, world-shattering event, mm-hmm. and the other one is having your kid. Right? Yeah, one of them I've been my entire life has led up to this moment, and the other is having my child. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna find him later on in life and play this back for him. Her. It's, it's going to be Oh, her. it's her. Okay. Fine. Fine. Yeah. Anyway. What, basically, I'm saying I'm going to cost you therapy bills. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Bye. All right. Bye.